So good morning again, everybody. We are, uh, we're in a sermon series called Kinfolk. And this series is about belonging. Who, who belongs to you and whom do you belong to? And this is one of the most fundamental questions of human nature of where do we belong and who belongs to us. We uh, go through great difficulties and pains to try to answer this question. And uh, throughout history, one of the ways that humans have answered this question is by forming tribes, tribes that were connected uh, by bloodlines, but also by different types of social contracts and struggles and uh, religions. And um, this has uh, worked, I guess, in the respect that that's, that's what human beings have done uh, really up until this point. And, and we're, what we're talking about and looking at and examining and trying to live out in the, in the life of our church is what does it mean when we find our identity actually under Jesus? And I know that sounds like, well, duh, it's a church chain, right? But we live in a moment in time in which the church is incredibly fractured. Uh, it's incredibly uh, uh, polarized in many ways, and when people who claim to be Christians and who are churchgoers are polled about the reasons why they will or will not go to the same church as other people, Jesus is pretty far down on the list. It's usually some other types of issues and whether or not folks agree with them about those various issues. This has accelerated dramatically since the election of Donald Trump the isolation of the pandemic has worsened this. The ways that we have responded as a culture to the pandemic has worsened this. The racial uh, justice and protests related to that coming to the surface in a way that it hasn't in a very long time uh, has great, more, more and more greatly divided the church and caused many people to ask, where do I belong? So we've been exploring the answer to that question in this series called Kinfolk, and we've explored it through the meaning and the content of baptism, of entering, being born again into a new family. Uh, we explored it with the, the communion table, coming and eating at the same table, the two sacraments, baptism and communion, that Jesus instituted for the church at large. We talked about diversity and the, and the necessity of each person bringing their distinct qualities, their racial, ethnic, gender, every other quality to the table, introvert, extrovert, whatever it may be, and that we are united by the same Spirit of God and at the same time incredibly distinct and diverse. Uh, then last week, we started talking about the rules of a family, family rules. And we started looking at this passage in Luke, which is a perspective and a telling of something uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus's uh, uh, most well-known and highly regarded teachings. And we started looking at what types of rules did Jesus lay down for his family? Because every family, you get to know what you're what your family is about and what it's like by what kind of rules your family follows. Like, hey, Carters don't do this. And uh, my youngest son, Xavier, started picking up on this. He's two and a half. 
And he's said a couple of times to his brother and sister recently, he said, hey, we don't tell each other that we hate each other. We don't hit each other. Carters don't do that. He didn't say Carters don't do that, but he said all the rest of it. And so he's getting this idea that because he's in a certain family, there's certain rules that we follow and abide by, and that helps us to understand the context of the family that we live in. And so this week, we're gonna continue to look at the Luke passage here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount and one of the core teachings that Jesus shares here. But it's not just a teaching of his. It's not just something that we heard him say and somebody wrote down. It's also the whole uh, foundation and crux of his life and ministry is centered around the ideas in this text. And so in my thinking, as I looked at this and have thought about, the, about this uh, text and wrestled with it uh, very intensely over the past few weeks, um, I've, I've found that uh, it could be it could be the same as it was 2,000 years ago, a radically revolutionary culture shifting and changing thing for the church to actually adopt the teachings of Jesus. To not just say Jesus is this object that gave us access to God and gave us permission to kind of just do whatever we want to do, however we want to do it, but that the teachings of Jesus actually were meant to be followed that they weren't some uh, lofty, impossible ideal meant to show us how sinful we were so we would repent, but that we were actually meant to embody the teachings of Jesus by the grace of God, by the power and the spirit of God. What do we need the Holy Spirit for if we're not gonna do anything that God has called us and asked us to do? And so it is crazy. Um, and so here we land at this text Jesus starting, but to those who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. I have a fake front tooth. My left front tooth is total, is total fake, um, and uh, it's an implant. And actually, when I first started preaching regularly at Christ City, I was going through the process of trying to keep this tooth and it being uh, slowly destroyed uh, in dental visits and in lots of problems and uh, preaching and teaching and doing different things and then having to shove, you know, cotton up in there because it's bleeding and things like that. And, and this tooth, now that I have this implant, it makes me think differently about decisions that I make in life. It makes me think differently about when I am wrestling with my eight-year-old son that's like the size of a lot of 12-year-olds and uh, my, other, my other kids, it makes me think differently about even like if I were to get into a car accident. So I'm like, oh, I'm gonna wear my seatbelt so my tooth doesn't fly out, right? Those kind of things. Um, and uh, it made me think differently in a moment yesterday when I was at my son's basketball game at the Croc. Yeah. Uh, so we were at this uh, basketball game at the Croc, and uh, the, the team that my son's team was playing was very aggressive, way too aggressive for little kids, mostly six and seven-year-olds. And um, 
I was, I was doing fine with it or whatever. And then they started sicking this, this guy on, on Benjamin who was about the same size as him. And, and, uh, and he was playing just way too rough. And um, you, know, you know how it works at games where you sit on, you know, there's like a home team side of the bleachers and then the away team kind of thing. So my whole team was on one side, my kid's team and the other kid's team was on the other side. Well, last game, Benjamin scored twice and he scored on the other team's goal. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, but you scored, man, it's all good. And we won that game too. And uh, so at halftime, you know, we switched sides. So I, I went over to the other side to help make sure Benjamin wouldn't get confused. Now between who's wearing masks and who's not, and the fact that I was moving to the other side to stay on the offensive side of the court with my son, that might have looked like I was an overzealous parent to some people. Maybe I was, I don't know. I was just trying to help him, you know, know which side was which. Well, this kid is grabbing my son, trying to pull him back behind him so he can't be open to get a pass. And my son says to him, I hear it in this loud gym. There's other games going on, lots of noise. It's really hard to hear. And I hear him clearly cuss my son out. Well, let me tell you, this passage was not the first thing that came into my mind and heart. And I used to be a public school teacher. I'm very used to correcting other people's children. And guess what I did? I corrected someone else's child. I said, little boy, and I pointed at him. And I was talking loud because it was loud in there and because I was very angry. I said, little boy, if you cuss at my child again, I'm gonna make sure that referee throws you out of bounds. And I turn, before I can even turn all the way, his dad is like right in front of me. And then the coach is right in front of me and then the referee is right in front of me. And uh, you know, we exchanged some words together at a, at a very high volume. And, uh, and then, you know, that was that or whatever. And it, and it was really my fault because I should have gone to the referee. But my parental instincts, my teaching instincts kicked in. And what I was reminded of is that I do have an incredible capacity to get angry and in, in this case, I didn't feel like I was gonna become violent at all, but it reminded me of times in my youth in which it, it might've been that way. And I was thinking about this sermon. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm preaching on like nonviolent uh, action tomorrow and uh, I'm coming home and Becky and I are discussing this and we, we ended up talking to the parents afterwards and, and shaking hands and whatnot and all that, uh, but it, it just made me really think seriously about how close and under the surface this is uh, for myself and uh, for just our culture that we live in. The culture that we live in glorifies violence to the point where it's just like, we don't even think about it, we don't even consider it. I mean, we watch heroes fighting and beating and killing and. Our, our military budget is, is insane. I mean, I, I just wanna show you this. I wanna show you 
Just, just show what the reality of what we're dealing with here, even if you don't think about it or experience it in your daily life, the reality of how violent, saturated our culture is in the mindset of our American culture. I wanna put this up on the screen. Did you guys get this? I sent it later. Uh, this chart here of how much money we spend for our defense budget, okay? So we spend over a hundred billion more dollars on our defense budget than 144 countries combined. And then the, the countries that are closest to spending what we spend, if you add all seven of those countries up, the ones that have the highest other than us, you add all of those next seven countries up and they still spend 40 billion less, all combined, than our defense budget. If the defense budget of our country was reduced even by like a tenth, it'd be like enough money to knock out the needs of world hunger. This brings home the reality of violence and what it does and what it's doing and what it will continue to do in our culture. And, and, it, and it brings home the reality of the great incompatibility between Christian faith and U.S. nationalism, patriotism and faith being synonymous with one another. There is no such thing if we are to believe the words of Jesus as American Christianity. It can't be true. It can't exist. If it is, it's, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's a phony. It's a styrofoam cutout. It's a flag that says Jesus saves waving next to the Trump uh, holding the AK-47 Rambo monstrosity but it certainly isn't anything that Jesus talked about. And I don't wanna, when I say this, I don't want to make a straw man out of the fact that serious theologians um, have come to the conclusion starting in the fifth century with uh, uh, Augustine, um, Augustine, uh, with the, this just war theory. You know, like this idea that without using violence to stop violent people, violence will perpetuate and reign, okay? And um, I, I, I can wrap my mind around that idea. I can understand that idea because all of this starts interpersonally and it starts for me getting to the point of the real life situations in which how could I possibly intervene and stop something from happening that is wrong nonviolently? Or if I don't, then what happens? 
So these are, are very, they, these are very real questions, and I'm sorry to ruin your Sunday morning with thinking about these things, but it's better to think about them now than once you're faced or once you're voting in the voting booth or once you're faced with violent scenarios or situations and things like that, because violence is everywhere around us and in our culture, and it's incredibly serious, and it's, again, it's at the crux of our Christian faith. You know what, in fact, so much so, that for the first 150 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no record of Christians in the army, in, in uh, taking up arms uh, in, the, in the Roman army or other armies. And if soldiers were converted, the church fathers said, you have, here's your choices. You can leave the army uh, or you can die a martyr in the army. Like those are the choices now that you are a Christian. It's a far cry from the churches that have had soldiers propelling down into the sanctuary, you know, honoring July 4th and, and wars and patriotism and these types of things. And I think a lot of, a lot of preachers, they don't want to touch this topic because of patriotism, because we all have family members who serve somewhere. My dad is a Vietnam vet. He saw combat, he saw violence, he saw death, and he was a part of those things. And I have seen the repercussions of that, and I am affected by that. And so it's difficult to talk about these things because you begin to talk about sacrifices that people made, and people begin to make, uh, they begin to make uh, assumptions that it means that you don't care or that you take things for granted that were done in the name of protecting your freedoms and those types of things. What I'm trying to do here though, and with our church and our congregation, I think what's at stake here is actually the human race continuing on earth. We have the capacity to blow up every man, woman, and child just in the United States with nuclear weapons 30 times over, just sitting there ready, ready for somebody to press a button and just set off that chain of events. And so I start, though, with myself on the basketball court, angry, right? I start with thinking about my son or my wife or my other family members in danger. And I think about those things. I start with thinking about the people who are afraid of those released from prison who've perpetuated violence against them. When I think about the words of Jesus saying, love your enemies, love your enemies. Uh, I want to give a definition of enemies from a theologian who thought about and wrote a lot about um, uh, nonviolent resistance, pacifism, and things like that. He says, uh, one, uh, he defines an enemy as one or many who negatively affect the survival of someone's self-interest, of the person who considers them an enemy's self-interest, such as life, possessions, reputation, or power. An enemy poses a threat of harm to oneself or one's self-interests. 
So it's important for us to define that idea that an enemy is not just the idea of a combatant on a battlefield on the, on the opposite side of you or a particular uh, a racial group or, or whatever it may be, somebody who holds a certain ideal, but it, it can become that because enemies are people who we have determined or someone has determined for us and we believe them is going to take something from us, is going to threaten things that have become valuable to us. And this is so important to the teachings here that Jesus is discussing. So it means that the dealing with loving enemies is not an issue of just war, but of safety, of security, of possessions, of pride even. And the fact that a lot of the time we are willing over things far less severe than our, than our actual physical safety of being hurt or harmed, we're willing to make enemies out of other people. So Jesus begins to address this and he talks about how, hey, good, so you love people that love you. That's great, okay? But everybody does that. Like, everybody loves who loves them. And you do good to those who do good to you? All right, cool. So do the, the bad people out there. And if you lend to those whom, from whom you expect repayment, so what? Everybody does that too. So he's, he begins by addressing these different levels of these ideas of what an enemy is and what an enemy wants to do in our mind or in reality. Because he starts here when he's saying, love your enemies in verse 27, he says, do good to those who hate you. And he starts here in 28 after that with blessing those who curse you. So he starts talking about just like speaking, like how we speak to one another. And how, you know how many fights have started uh, in school over a boy saying your mama after somebody said something? This starts right there, man. Like a whole, whole world wars have hinged probably upon some, some kid being small and defenseless and getting called names when he was a kid and he grew up and became, you know, Mussolini or whatever, right? Yeah, I know I said his name wrong. Um, so he starts there, and then in verse 29 he says, moving from language, he says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them also the other. So then he moves to physical confrontation. But he doesn't stop there. It's curious when he's talking about enemies here, because he also starts to address, if someone takes your coat, he starts to address possessions as well. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. And then he ups it even further in verse 30, said, says, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So when considering who is the enemy and what is what does the enemy want and trying to get from us? He's talking about things like the language being used, which deals with issues of pride and things like that. The idea of physical force, of somebody physically hurting and harming you. And then he also deals with greed. That, that greed itself is a form of violence perpetuated upon uh, 
different people and that someone who is greedy in many ways is like an enemy of yours. If they're greedy, that means they're trying to get possessions and things that maybe you would also want. And I don't have those statistics in front of me, but I can tell you that the United States consumes a, a, a vastly disproportionate amount of the world's resources. And interestingly enough, a lot of countries seem to really hate us, right? They consider us their enemy and like, whoa, what did we do to you guys? We just took all your stuff and your ability to um, survive, right? Um, to, 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 to really make this point, I wanna share another quote with you because I think it's so important for this conversation not to be focused on, well, what do I do if somebody's mugging me? How am I supposed to respond to that? Um, I've, I've thought about those situations. I've been in situations where people had guns or access to guns, and I've managed to navigate them nonviolently. Man, was it scary. Um, but I want to have a broader discussion about what it means to love your enemy and why that is so crucial to understand what do we mean by enemy and what do, we, what do we mean by what the enemy wants? The enemy wants these things of yours or you're an enemy to somebody else because of it. So let's talk about that in terms of violence. How do we commit this violence against each other? I'm gonna share this quote from you, uh, with you from this guy named John Deere. He wrote a book called Disarming the Heart. And the book's all about an oath to nonviolence. Um, I don't know a lot about the guy. I found his book in a used bookstore years ago in California, and I've read parts of it over the years because this, since I dedicated my, rededicated my life to Christ at 21, I've been over and over fascinated by this idea of nonviolent resistance, pacifism, and how possible is it really to live this way in the world? How can I move more towards that? So in this quote, John Deere is describing and defining violence and how, because we can't not, we can't be not violent or nonviolent without understanding what violence contains. It's the same things that Jesus is talking about here. He said, the violence that happens when we forget or ignore our basic identities, our identities as children of God, can take various forms on a continuum of violence, depending on the extent to which we have forgotten or ignored our basic identity as children of God. The spectrum includes any use of emotional, psychological, personal, communal, communal or intense international manipulation or domination by one's will over and against another's will. Violence can take the form on one end of the spectrum of hatred and lying, which we hold in our hearts and publicly deny, and on the other end can include the use of physical force or power to damage or destroy humanity. It can come under the form of a spirit which makes people do what I do not want. Do, yes, threaten and inflict physical harm or any other form of punishment on others. Our support of the unjust, judgmental values of society, which have led us into a nuclear arms race 
and militarism, he's writing this in the 80s, by the way, and forced the majority of the world into poverty, starvation, disease, homelessness, the denial of human dignity and other injustices, is a participation in violence. So he's saying the support of unjust, judgmental values of society that have led to all of these problems in the world is a participation in violence and a legitimization of violence. Destitution and poverty which result in early and unjust deaths among the poor are caused by the greed and selfishness of people who are too afraid to risk a break with the way of violence, a break with the way of violence, who forget or ignore the fact that so-called legitimate systemic violence has a harmful consequence somewhere down the line on others. Our greed causes direct physical harm and death to the world's poor, and thus each large and small act of greed can harm others. There has been an ongoing struggle to get a man here in Tennessee off of death row. His, his name is Purvis Payne. He's a mentally disabled black man. I believe now he's in his 40s. I uh, saw his dad at a prayer rally outside of 201 Poplar a few months, months back. Um, our partnership with Micah is involved in, in the protest and, and he's been, his, his, uh, death, his, his execution date has been delayed as of now. And somewhere along the way in your mind, when you think about these ideas, you might come across the thought of, why does it matter so much putting so much effort and energy into this one man not being executed? Of course, the, the DNA evidence shows he's innocent. The, there's no witnesses. There's, no, there's really nothing. He was a scapegoat as many disabled black men have been in our history. And it comes down to these ideas here in the teachings of Jesus in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It comes down to what, what are we doing to protect life? How are we engaging in nonviolent action to stop and the perpetuation of violence to end violence. Violence never ends violence. When, uh, when Becky and I are arguing, we're, we're both pretty opinionated people, so we have some spirited debates. Uh, We, we both, neither one of us really had a lot of skills for knowing, like when we got into this argument, we both thought we were right, like how do we end this argument? And we learned in counseling and other places how to end the argument, and it was to ask the other person, what do you need? Or to say, I'm sorry. See, being right, and fighting for what we believed was right never seemed 
to stop the fighting, never seemed to stop the violence. It was only when that cycle of violence was broken by asking, what do you need? You see how these things are intertwined, greed, right? The, the, the dismissal of, of certain parts of people or certain places where people uh, live or how they live and finding out what it is that people need. Jesus masterfully, geniusly combines these things here um, in these teachings. And what he gives is very interesting. We talked about the work of Howard Thurman yesterday and Jesus and the disinherited. And what he gives here is actually a means to overcome oppression for the oppressed Jewish people who were his audience, his initial audience here. Jesus grew up watching violent resistance to oppression, to violence, to the, the Romans who could treat them any kind of way. He saw a town not far from his burn to white ash through violence resist, violent resistance. And he's here presenting another way that sounds so incredibly difficult because it is, it is. And yet as we talk about what does it mean to be kinfolk as Christians? What does it mean to be centered into this family of God? Uh, it, it's gotta start somewhere. I'm sure it's starting different places, but maybe it can start here as we revisit the importance of the family rules that Jesus laid down, the family rules of taking seriously the perpetuation that violence has when it's used to stop more violence. We have examples of this uh, that are not 2,000 years old. We have the concept that was used recently by Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights activists called uh, nonviolent direct action. Nonviolent direct action. And I bring that up now because when I'm thinking about these things and I'm imagining other people thinking about these things or I'm in a discussion, there seems to be a lack of creativity and imagination a lot of times in the conversation of, well, if it's not violence, then what are you gonna do? You're just gonna stand there and do nothing and let bad things happen or not defend yada yada, whatever it may be, right? Those are the two options, right? That's what we've been told pretty much our entire lives. That's what our media shows us and tells us as well. But Jesus presents a third way that he enacted, that his followers enacted for at least 150 or so years without break. And the third way, uh, let me talk about the, the first two ways first. So the first way to react to an enemy committing violence is to respond with violence, right? To strike out the eye of the other person if they struck out your eye. The second of the two that we're told that our options is passivity, to ignore the violence, right? To just turn a blind eye to it, as long as our safety and security isn't threatened. And this is far closer to human nature than we might imagine. And so, as the conversation often goes, those who are unwilling to commit violence are just cowards. I didn't have any desire to beat up this guy's dad yesterday. I didn't, I had no desire. And I also wasn't scared. 
I was really angry, but I didn't want to beat him up, and I wasn't scared. If I was scared, so, so, but there is a third option that allows you to take action, to be angry, to even be furious without resulting in violence. When Jesus was ready to go to Jerusalem, it says in the scriptures that he set his face like flint. Like he looked like, you know, like you'd imagine like Clint Eastwood or somebody, right? Who's a newer guy? I'm showing my age right there. Just, you know, you know, looking really tough. He's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. He's passionate. He's pissed off even. He's, he's sad, he's angry, he's in anguish. And he's going to Jerusalem to confront the powers of injustice and to pick up no sword in the process and to even heal the ear of a man who his disciples struck off with a sword. So he had both anger and passion, a desire to see things be made right, and no intention and did not commit violence in the process. So there are three options. There's a third way that Jesus gives us. There's violence in return. Someone curses you, you curse them. Someone takes your stuff, you figure out how to take their stuff. There's passivity. I'm gonna hide and hope it goes away and that my stuff isn't threatened and who and what my, is important to me isn't threatened. Or there is a means of nonviolent direct action. But the kicker is this. I mean, it means you lose your stuff. It means you lose the, thing, the sense of worldly security that you might have. There, there's, there's no, uh, and, then, and then everything works out perfectly in this life for you after that. You know, another person that, um, that uh, MLK, Dr. King, learned from was Mahatma Gandhi. And um, when, he was when he was thinking about and talking to people about this, like this choice that you're making between passivity, nonviolent action, violence, he said this, I do believe that where there is only a choice between cowardice and violence, I would advise violence. I believe why he said that is because it takes an incredible amount of courage and anger and passion to engage in loving your enemies, in living a life where you free yourself over and over and you ask God to free you from greed, from needing to protect and secure the things that you believe makes your life what it is. Peter said it this way. Uh, he's talking about suffering and he's saying, hey, there's ways you can suffer because you just did something stupid or wrong. But if you suffer for good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps.
He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For we were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter makes the argument for us living this life because this is a life that Jesus lived. And I am coming to the conclusion right now of the sermon. Um, and I've found as, as I've been wrestling with this for years and previously in my younger life studied a lot of violence um, in, in sports and wrestling and martial arts and things like that and, and became fascinated that there was a different way. I found that this is, this is, is so important in what might be next for a portion of the American church to reassemble under the family rules of following in the footsteps of Jesus, not Jesus as an object that we attach to our flags and we attach to our patriotism, but as a rabbi, a master, someone to follow, to understand what it means to not resist evil with evil. A cross-shaped life, some have called it, a cruciform life. I know for me, the only way that I can do that is by remembering this table, by asking God to teach me and show me how rather than any punishment or um, uh, a wrath poured out onto me, God gave me love instead. God gave me the life of Jesus instead, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus instead. And that is the only thing that is a source of power great enough for me to find out this creative solution in the midst of a culture drenched in the alternative. 